If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for February 2nd, 2020. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. If you're interested in all the political news, especially the political news directly related to Donald Trump, make sure you check out my other podcast, which is the Individual One podcast. You can find that, among other places, at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Uh, there is a lot to talk about in this particular edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Uh, we'll get to as much of it as we possibly can, but I have to start with what happened a week ago today, not far from where we are broadcasting from and not far at all from where I live uh, here just outside of Los Angeles, California. You're probably aware that NBA legend Kobe Bryant along with eight other people, including his own daughter and two other young girls, were all killed, uh, tragically, in a helicopter accident in Calabasas, California. Now, uh, I have a lot to say about this. Uh, We often joke, although it's also serious, uh, on this podcast that almost every major story has some sort of connection to to me. <laughs> it's kind of our six degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon uh, element of the podcast, and it's remarkable how often that is the case. And, and this story uh, certainly qualifies, although I'm not anywhere near uh, important about it, just it's important for context of my experience with this tragedy. Uh, here's uh, here's the story. Um, Kobe Bryant was supposed to land, along with the eight other people in that helicopter, about two or three miles from where I live. That's that's the first connection. But the more important connection is that where this crash happened in Calabasas is right off of the exit of the 101, uh, where I own a rental property, and so I'm I'm very. Uh, familiar with the location, exceedingly familiar with the location. And as fate would have it, uh, my family and I were driving right past that location. We didn't know at the time, but just minutes after the accident happened. 
And here's how it all transpired, and this may give you some sense of the circumstances surrounding this crash. We were going to go to Disneyland that day. That's why we did not have a podcast last Sunday. And obviously, Disneyland is south of Los Angeles. We live north of Los Angeles. So when we were about to leave, I looked at my phone to check the weather. And I noticed that where we live, my the weather uh, forecast had a symbol that I had never noticed before. I'd never seen it before, at least not where I live. And it wasn't rain. Uh, it wasn't cloudy. And the, the, what I could figure was that it was it was a symbol for mist, like a foggy mist, which is not unheard of around here, but it's pretty rare. And again, I had never noticed this on my phone before. And I'm thinking none of it, nothing of it, because it's supposed to clear up later in the day. And by the time we get to Disneyland and Anaheim, everything's supposed to be you know fine and dandy, mid 60s and sunny. So we get in the car. And we, and we leave our, our town where Kobe's helicopter was supposed to land before they then drove to Thousand Oaks for this uh, afternoon basketball game. And not long after we get onto the 101, it starts misting. Like, like, and this happens a lot in Southern California where it's not really rain, but you know the, the water is accumulating on your windshield wipers. And my wife says to me, and she's driving because uh, it's her car. <laughs> uh, she she says, "Uh oh, should are we going to be in trouble here? You know, going to Disneyland in the middle of the rain." I said, "No, the, the forecast is fine. By the time we get to, to Anaheim, it's, it should all clear up." And so, as we we're driving towards Disneyland, we're also driving towards Calabasas, and it was foggy. It was the visibility was not great, but. And this is based upon text messages I sent to other people having nothing to do with this while we were in the car. The best I can figure is that we drove right past that exit within a couple hundred yards of the accident at most 15 minutes after it happened, probably closer to 10 minutes after it happened, and had absolutely no idea, none. Uh, you know, obviously, we missed the the crash itself, and uh, you know the flames at that point. I'm assuming must have been diminished, uh, or it was hidden from the highway, and we just missed the whole thing. But what was significant was that I was taking note of the weather, and my wife's recollection and my recollection are a little bit different. In my view. The weather was not that big of a problem. This was not, it was, it was again, misty or foggy or cloudy, but I've seen a lot, lot worse, even here in Southern California. My wife felt it was a little bit, since she was driving, felt like it was a little bit uh, worse than, than I'm uh, describing it as. But there's no doubt, and there's been other pictures that have shown this, that this was not an emergency situation. This was not a situation where everyone would have been on high alert uh, flying a helicopter. Now, there's a theory, at least I have a theory, that that might have been what ended up causing the accident. Because I do believe that in life, that one of the most dangerous situations you can be in 
is when there is danger, but you're not on super high alert about it because you think, ah, this isn't that big of a deal, and therefore you don't take it seriously and you underestimate it. Could that have been one that ended up happening, that the, the pilot didn't take this as seriously as he should have, got into a bad situation, got disoriented, and ended up uh, crashing into the, the side of the hill in Calabasas? And I, that is certainly possible. It appears as if engine failure has been ruled out, although not officially yet. It'll take a long time for the official uh, determination to be made. But there, there doesn't seem to be any indication of that. And I am, because I'm very familiar with the area, having gone off that exit hundreds of times because of the property we live there, we have there, I am really confused as to what the hell happened here. Uh, the, the long and short of it, and I'm not a, a helicopter pilot or a, and I have no knowledge of being a pilot of any kind. I'm just using my common sense here and my knowledge of, of the terrain. It seems pretty obvious that on their way to Camarillo to land in the little airport there, and, 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 and let me just take an aside here, there's so many elements of this tragedy, and it is horrendous on so many damn levels, but one of them is that on a Sunday morning, I don't even understand how much time they thought they were saving themselves going to Thousand Oaks from Newport Beach. They really, I mean, by the time Kobe and everybody on that helicopter goes from Kobe's house to the uh, Santa Ana airport and then flies to Camarillo and then drives presumably in a limo to Thousand Oaks. That's on a Sunday morning when there's not much traffic. That's going to take as much time as it would have to just get in a damn limo and, and drive to Thousand Oaks. At most, they were going to save themselves 15 minutes. That's, that's what was at risk here. Kobe was spending a lot of money to save 15 minutes. I mean, and, and my God. Uh, anyway, so they're in the helicopter, and there's the the low visibility, and they're supposed to make a right-hand turn at the 101 freeway to go up to Camarillo. And it's obvious that the pilot misses the right-hand turn at the 101. He crosses the 101. Now, that's understandable because this is a very hilly area, and I can see in limited visibility – Whatever happens, you miss the turn, right? You're supposed to follow the 101 up into Camarillo to the airport. Now, this is where I am baffled as to what the hell happened next. Again, I'm not a pilot. I'm just using common sense here. Once he crosses the 101, he goes to make a U-turn, what appears to be a U-turn, to go back to the 101. Now, that makes sense, except... If you make a U-turn to the right in the direction of Camarillo, which would you would think would be the instinctive way to go, right? I mean, you're going right. Why would you not make the U-turn to the right? If you make the U-turn to the right, there's almost nothing but open space there. It's totally open. You've got the whole world in front of you until you get to Malibu. He doesn't do that. Instead, he makes... A U-turn, um, that's my term, a U-turn to the left, which is the exact opposite direction of where they're eventually going, and it's right into the side of a hill. And that's where they end up crashing, killing nine people. Again, I want to emphasize, I have no expertise 
in in being a pilot. I'm just going by common sense. I do not understand why a very seasoned, experienced, and by all accounts, excellent pilot would get themselves in that situation. Now, I get the whole disorientation thing. It certainly does appear as if the pilot may have been disoriented. I don't understand why in that situation when you're in a helicopter as opposed to a plane, if you get disoriented, just you don't go straight up, where obviously straight up means safety. Instead, they went straight down. And the change in trajectory was rather dramatic and, to me, inexplicable. I don't get it, and I'm really kind of surprised that that the theory that something happened to that pilot has not gotten more traction. We're probably never going to know because there was no black box. There's obviously no witnesses. Uh, to, to my understanding, there was, and this is consistent with the theory that something happened to the pilot, that there was no communication from the pilot even after they were telling him he was flying too low. Uh, maybe we'll know more about that once the investigation is over with. But it certainly seems to me consistent with the notion that something happened to the pilot because it wasn't engine failure. And the circumstances didn't seem severe enough to me to allow for a guy that experienced and that good to get so off track and to make so many massive mistakes as to cause such a catastrophe. And let's be clear, you've seen the pictures of the crash site. This was not a situation where this, you know, was was almost avoided, right? Right? Where the, the pilot realized they were in grave jeopardy and the last minute tried to swerve or or, or or raise altitude to avoid the hill. No, they slammed right into the side of that hill at a very high rate of speed. And I just go by common sense. That doesn't make any sense to me unless something catastrophic happened to that pilot, whether it was a, a heart attack or, or who knows what. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could happen. The, the helicopter was built for two pilots, and then they had eight passengers. So, for, so that's the logistics of it, and we probably will never know for sure what really happened other than it seems pretty obvious it was either pilot error or something happened to the pilot. As far as the tragedy element of this, I mean, obviously, you can't get a situation that's much more tragic than this. And and like everybody else, but especially as a as a father to two young daughters, you know, my, my thought immediately goes to, oh my God, the three young girls on board. I mean, I mean, holy cow! Uh, and and you always want to know, did they know? Did they know what was going to happen? How much time did they have to know? Did, did did Kobe have enough time to hug his young girl? Was she terrified? Were the girls screaming? Or did this just hit them out of nowhere? We probably will never know that either. My guess is they had to know something was wrong. Something that the trajectory on that helicopter was changing so dramatically in the final seconds that they had to know something was very, very wrong. But then even then, you know, I thought a lot about this, obviously, <laughs> like I'm, like everyone else in certainly Los Angeles and around the world has. I, I got to believe that having Kobe on board probably created a, what turned out to be a false sense of security 
on the part of everyone that was on that helicopter? Because even if, like, there's a sense that something's wrong, you're, you're at least subconsciously thinking, Kobe Bryant's on this helicopter. Not, nothing, nothing really bad's going to happen, right? I mean, it's just not possible. Well, in, th in this case, it obviously did. And in Los Angeles, this has really kind of been, there's elements of the Princess Diana story here. There's elements of the JFK Jr. story here. Obviously, both involve an extraordinarily famous person dying in a horrible crash at a very young age. This obviously has the addition of the, the, the children being killed and more people being killed, uh, nine in all. You know, Los Angeles does not have much that brings it together. Uh, this certainly has in many ways. Uh, but as some, somebody who's always concerned about our future, especially now that I have two young daughters, uh, an element of this tragedy that I don't know that too many other people have thought about, that, that I, um, I feel pretty strongly about, is that beyond the personal tragedy, uh, this area, this city especially, lost an enormous potential resource in the future. And what I mean by that, and look, Kobe was a complicated figure. I was never a huge Kobe fan back during his his rape trial that where he did not end up even getting put on trial, uh, that he was charged and they were dropped and, and he apologized and all that. I was very anti-Kobe based upon everything I've experienced since then, in this realm, I'm not sure as I, I would have been as anti-Kobe as I was as a talk show host in Los Angeles. But there is absolutely zero doubt that Kobe Bryant held a unique place, especially in Los Angeles, not just because of his fame, but because of the nature of his popularity. There is nobody, nobody else other than maybe Magic Johnson. Now, I'm not sure even I could put even Magic Johnson in this category because, you know, Ma Magic's a little flighty. Um, but there is nobody who had more respect and for whom there was more reverence among every demographic and ethnic group in Los Angeles than Kobe Bryant. And I believe that someday, someday, and it might not even be that long from now, when Los Angeles is in unrest again and Los Angeles is burning again and there's ethnic unrest in Los Angeles. Uh, we're really going to, we're going to miss Kobe Bryant because Kobe is one of the very few people uh, who would have had the potential standing among all ethnic groups to say, Hey, let's knock it off. And people might've listened to him. That, that kind of person, especially in this day and age doesn't grow on trees. And that's just one element of this loss for this community. Uh, but it is, it is huge on, on every possible level. And it has been remarkable to see the sports world, and especially the basketball world, my gosh, wow. I mean, they're reacting to the death of Kobe Bryant uh, more dramatically than my recollection is they, that they reacted to 9-11. I mean, this, this is really the 9-11 of of the basketball community because he was this generation's Michael Jordan. 
And I get it. I understand it. Some of the commemorations and the honoring have been a little bit uh, goofy or hokey uh, for my blood. Uh, there were parts of the Lakers' uh, celebration, if you will, on Friday night at their first game since his death that I, I didn't really appreciate. I, I, I did find it odd that they canceled the first game after his his death. They were supposed to play the Clippers on Tuesday. I've talked on this podcast before about cancellation nation and how everything and just ends up getting canceled or postponed if it's inconvenient. You know, after seeing what they did on Friday, it's obvious to me that the real reason why the game on Tuesday was postponed was not really because of the emotional uh, difficulty with playing the game. I mean, remember, this is a former player. He didn't even technically, I mean, it wasn't like he was an owner or a general manager. I mean, he wasn't technically even part of the team anymore. Uh, but I get it. He's a friend. It's a huge, you know, huge, huge figure in the history of the franchise. But to, to cancel the game, it, it's now obvious seeing what they did on Friday that it was more logistical than it was emotional because that, that was a lot to put on in two days. And they wanted to do it right. And I get why they wanted to do it right. And it was quite a spectacle. Uh, there were elements of it I didn't like. I, I really did not like uh, when all the players were introduced as Kobe Bryant from the Lakers. That, that to me, I felt very hokey and very goofy. And, and I'm very conflicted about LeBron James. Uh, LeBron James is, is a hell of a player. He's probably even better than Kobe Bryant. Uh, he has declared um, that he is going to take over Kobe's legacy, which I understand why he did that. He was trying to make people feel better in a, in a moment of incredible sadness, and, and I, I appreciate that intent. It's also a bit narcissistic to do so. I have a Twitter friend who, who counted up the number of times in his original Instagram post about Kobe's death, which was only a few paragraphs long, in which he referred to himself, LeBron did, 31 times, uh, which, you know, I always think that tells a lot about a person. When someone dies, are they talking about themselves or are they talking about the person? And LeBron has mostly talked about himself. And he, he gave a speech at Friday's basketball game where he claimed to be going off script, even though it was pretty obvious that, that was all planned to go off script because that's the way LeBron is. LeBron is a very contrived guy. And, look, I hope he, he carries on Kobe's legacy. I hope uh, that he stays in Los Angeles and, and does everything he can to, to, to play the role that Kobe would have played had he not been in this helicopter accident. I don't trust that that's going to happen. You know, I this is a bizarre analogy, but those who follow me politically will understand it. To me, this feels a lot like uh, Lindsey Graham uh, saying he's going to carry on John McCain's legacy after he died, and then uh, 15 minutes later, uh, he's he's kissing Trump's ass all over the place and crapping all over John McCain's legacy. Uh, so you know, while there's obviously differences, I can see that uh, LeBron retires in three or four years. He uh, moves uh, moves to South Beach, uh, you know, in the uh, winter, in the summers, uh, or something like. We see that because by you know three or four years, let's face it, people aren't going to be that focused on on Kobe Bryant anymore because he's dead. And uh, and when people die, guess what? They can't do anything for you. And the, unfortunately, the way humans are in general, especially in this day and age, uh, you know, that, that, that tends to have its, uh, a major impact on the way people respond not long after you're dead. So I, my, I'll be curious to see how LeBron handles the whole thing. Uh, there were people, of course, who tried to bring up the, the, the rape case, as I've already alluded to. I don't believe that was the right time to do it. I, I'm a big believer that 
when someone dies, you're allowed to, to be honest about who they were. But that's you. But I think there's an exception when someone dies young, tragically, with other people involved, including a family member, especially when there are other opportunities to have that discussion and that debate. Uh, you know, if someone dies at the age of 85, right, that's the only time you're going to be able to discuss their legacy for the 15 minutes that we care. With Kobe, there's going to be plenty of other moments. Like, for instance, he's getting inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, posthumously uh, this fall. You want to have that conversation about, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant's personal legacy, that's fine. Uh, I, I was depressed but not surprised to see that uh, Christine Brennan, a former friend of mine who I dated for five minutes many, many years ago, was leading the charge here. Uh, she's just be I, such a disappointing person. Uh, she does this because it's in her self-interest. This is her brand. She gets a lot of attention for this. And frankly, I think she hates men. I think she hates men because she never got married. She never had kids. And, you know, now she and, – and, and let's, let's be clear. She's desperate for some sort of relevance from a career standpoint. So she's the go-to media person in the sports media for, uh, you know, always attacking anybody who was ever accused of anything in the realm of sexual abuse. Uh, I, just to be clear, I'm not a hypocrite because uh, I have been criticized for – for criticizing dead people uh, in the past. In fact, I'm going to get to that uh, similar situation, although very different, shortly. But I do think that this this particular situation deserved some time. Not now. Wait, wait, wait a goddamn minute, because this one was this was too terrible, especially because of the daughters involved, and um, and so that's pretty much what I have to say about the, this terrible, terrible tragedy. Um, it's just so sad on so many levels. You know, from, from Kobe's perspective, you work your ass off for all those 20 years of being a pro basketball player. You win five NBA championships. When you're doing it, there's, there's some pleasure in the victory, but there's more agony than there is pleasure. You're doing it because if it all works out, you're going to get to live an amazing life for 40 or 50 years. And Kobe had earned that. And then it all gets snuffed out. The light gets snuffed out. The flame gets snuffed out over something as unbelievably stupid as the visibility being not what it should be on that particular day. And you're trying to save 15 minutes in a trip to a girls basketball game on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, really, how do you make any goddamn sense of that? But that's the way the world is, and uh, it's just so so incredibly, terribly sad and tragic. Now, speaking of <laughs> speaking of of me speaking about people who have been dead, uh, this David Foster Wallace thing just will will never die. <laughs> it's unbelievable. The guy has been dead for twelve years. Yeah, if you don't know the incredible background between me and David Foster Wallace. Uh, check out our last episode of the World According to Zig podcast. A lot of people thought it was uh, incredibly fascinating and compelling. Uh, but I'm not going to go through the entire uh, story of it, other than to say that a few weeks ago, a guy by the name of Ken White, a lawyer of some note, I guess, a conservative, uh, blasted me for a couple of tweets that I had sent in response 
to the infamous David Foster Wallace article that he wrote about me, 23-page cover story in Atlantic Magazine back in 2005. And whenever I get attacked on Twitter, and I was being attacked on Twitter because I had just written for The Bulwark for the first time, which is an anti-Trump conservative uh, website. And so I'm being attacked from all possible angles. And somebody tweeted at me that article. And uh, I said something along the lines of, uh, yeah, that's really credible. There's like three, four mistakes in the first paragraph. And the guy uh, ended up uh, killing himself. And I referred to that uh, suicide as selfish and cowardly which I believe that it was, selfish and cowardly. The guy had a family. He was young. He was well off. Uh, you know, who knows what could have happened had he been able to get through his depression. I've experienced very similar depression and suicidal thoughts earlier in my life, and I'm very glad that I did not succumb to them because otherwise I would not have two young daughters today. And so um, this guy, Ken White, decides he's going to virtue signal. And without even contacting me, having no idea who I am, he writes this uh, article blasting me. And then it was picked up uh, by a couple other people, also wrote articles blasting me. Again, never bothering to contact me, either by email or phone. And, be, and I'm happy to talk to anybody. You want to you write something about me? That's fine. I'm a big boy. But, you know, at least get my side of the story, especially given the, the context here is so incredibly important. And, and I've never been involved in a story where context is more important. Because how do you evaluate me calling his suicide many years later cowardly unless you understand that I knew the guy really well, that he shadowed me for two months, that I was in a foxhole with him, essentially, figuratively, when this whole 23-page article comes out, that this article becomes a huge part of his legacy because it's one of the last major things he wrote. In fact, it's the last chapter in his last book, Considered a Lobster because he ends up killing himself a couple years later. And, you know, I, I'm very comfortable with my view on David Foster Wallace. I'm not saying I'm 100% right. I'm saying that it is a legitimate opinion based upon an extraordinary experience, a lot of facts, a lot of thought, and a lot of logic. And some of it, by the way, is even backed up by <laughs> the movie on his life. The movie on his life. Look at the trailer. On his, it's a very pro-David Foster Wallace movie, and the trailer actually refers to his fear of being found out as a fraud, which is, I believe, a large part of why he ended up killing himself. It's in the damn trailer of his movie, of the movie about him, which is a very favorable movie. Well, The Atlantic, which has never done me any favors. I mean, since the beginning of this whole thing back in 2005, I, you know, I, I wrote a letter to the editor in response to it, which, of course, you know, let no one reads letters to the editor. When they republish this damn thing many years later, and they're claiming, I, I don't even know. It's funny how memory works. They're telling me that they republished this in 2018, and maybe that's when it happened, but I thought it happened a lot longer ago than that. Uh, but they republished the thing, and it doesn't make any sense to me why they would republish it on the 13th anniversary. I, I thought it was the, would have been the 10th anniversary. But anyway, uh, when they republished this very famous piece about me, they asked for comment, and then they, they hid the comment as much as they possibly could. You can, you can barely find it linked within, embedded within the, the preview of the piece. And, uh, and so... Um, and then I had another bad experience with the Atlantic 
when they were covering the so-called Steubenville rape trial and, and, and that whole case in the Steubenville High School football team, which I was very close to because I knew the coach because I had written a book about the coach and the team many years ago, and I was intimately involved in the story and knew the facts and they were getting it all wrong and they treated me so shabbily when I tried to correct them and and what was so weird about this is and not not that this should dictate events but it's just so typical of the way my life works the guy who who I I think he was the owner if not certainly he was the the titular head of the magazine guy by the name of David Bradley is a business friend of my father's who I communicated with, and I still couldn't get any reasonable treatment. And I don't even know if David Bradley's still involved with The Atlantic now, but I, re- I asked uh, the, for the opportunity to respond to this Ken White piece ripping me for calling David Foster Wallace's suicide cowardly. And they refused to let me uh, write my own piece, but they said you could write a letter to the editor. So I'm like, whatever. I'll write it. Just for the record, I'll write another letter to the editor. And so I wrote a very short letter to the editor saying, basically, if Ken White had had the balls, I didn't say this, but if he had had the balls to contact me, here's what he would have learned. And then there's like four or five bullet points on what he would have learned that would have provided context for why I tweeted the, those words while watching a football game at a party. I mean, as if this is freaking relevant. But they, they don't. They don't. No one cares about the truth. They just want to be able to virtue signal and claim that they're, uh, you know, somehow the good guy. And I, I don't understand how a conservative ends up being pro-suicide, which is what Ken White is essentially being. I mean, my whole view here is anti-suicide. I don't want us as a society enabling suicide by saying it's perfectly fine and you're not allowed to criticize someone because they killed themselves. It's a selfish act when you have a family and you're you're well off and you're physically in good health. I mean, there's life is very precious, and you go end up killing yourself because you don't want to face the difficulty of it. Well, when you're young, I get. I believe me, I understand the the pain of of depression. I I get it. After my mother was killed in a car accident, I, I experienced it for many years. I had to go on Zoloft. Uh, still get it to, to a certain degree to this day. Uh, but I'm sorry. Uh, you, you have obligations to other people, and you, you power through. David Foster Wallace did not do that. And, you know, does that make him the world's worst person? No, but that doesn't mean you're not allowed to criticize him. So I wrote this uh, letter to the editor, which they finally published on 10 a, at 10 a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> They, they informed me they were putting it out at 10 a.m. on a Saturday, which I, I thought was a laughable. This, this letter to the editor got far more, far more vetting. I mean, this was days of vetting and research and took far more time for them to decide to publish than the original Ken White column bashing me, which I thought was so classically typical. And they finally published it under an absurd headline. They, it, it had nothing to do with my piece. The headline was that, you know, shaming people with depression won't cure them or something to that degree, something to that uh, of that ilk. That was the headline. And what they were doing was quoting one of the other letters about Ken White's column, which is fine. And frankly, I don't think they should have done that. I mean, the, the article was about me. I'm responding. It should have been focused on my letter, which was the first of the letters that they ran. But I'm not even 
worried about the fact that it, it wasn't focused on my response, as it should have been, logically. I'm more worried about the fact how absurd it is that, that, that they're making this seem as if I was shaming a person with depression. I was talking about someone who had already killed themselves. This is not a, I'm not shaming someone alive with depression into trying to get them to cure themselves. I'm saying someone who already killed themselves many years ago did so out of reasons that were selfish and cowardly. You don't have to agree with that, but that's perfectly legitimate and that's not shaming an alive person with depression. But that's just so classically typical of of the Atlantic and incredibly, uh, you know, Frankly, it's depressing. It's, it's makes you want to freaking kill yourself. I, I say that almost mostly facetiously, but uh, but that was I thought the end of it. Well, then last night Ken White is attacking me again on Twitter, and all of his cult members are attacking me on Twitter to the point where I had to uh, at least temporarily lock my tweets because if I didn't, I'm going to get bombarded. I'm not going to be able to even look at my Twitter feed because there's just hundreds of people who have no idea who I am. And, and, and I have offered to talk to Ken White. I would meet with Ken White. Apparently he's here in the Los Angeles area. He doesn't want any part of that because he just wants to, he, he doesn't want anything to disrupt the narrative that he's already bought into. He's a coward. He's, he's more cowardly than David Foster Wallace. And, and my guess is deep down he knows he's wrong about me. But I love this. I love this. In fact, Ken White actually tweeted this at one point, and I, I retweeted it. He actually said, you are a despicable person. Why would I ever speak to you? Well, as a lawyer, he ought to understand that that's a classic circular argument. Maybe, maybe you don't know who the fuck I am. You have no idea. You've never had any communication with me before you wrote this article. And the only other... I've offered to speak to you. You're afraid to do that because you've already determined that I'm a despicable person. And I get this. I mean, that's what my critics always do. They ne it's never substantive. He's a horrible person. Why is he a horrible person? Because of the opinions he has. <laughs> really? I'm a horrible person because of the highly educated opinions I have. You cannot be serious. Uh, that's, that's the argument against John Ziegler. By the way, the, these aren't... Um, uh, opinions about things I know nothing about. If I was spewing outrageous opinions just to get attention over issues I know nothing about, that's fine. Attack the crap out of me. I, that that's that's I would have zero issue with that, and that probably would make me a bad person. But it's the exact opposite here. It's always Sandusky or Michael Jackson or Matt Lauer. So, topics I have intimate unique knowledge of world world level expertise on and probably more than in fact in, all, in at least two of those stories i'm the world's most foremost expert and in the michael jackson case i'm in the top 10 so i mean it's 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 unbelievable my david foster wallace i'm in the top 5 if if not more than that so these are subjects that again you don't have to agree with me but I have unique knowledge of that I put a lot of thought into where I'm actually trying to be nice. I, that's the irony. I'm trying to be nice in all of this. And, uh, and I'm get called, I get called constantly a bad person. 
I'm a horrible, horrendous, dirtbag, despicable human being. Yet, I've spoken to you, and I will not speak to you. <laughs> because if I speak to you, I might find out that that preconceived notion is false. Let me uh, just say in general, and I'm, I, I'm not at liberty to give all the details right now, but this whole episode with Ken White has uh, angered me almost more than any other that I have ever been involved with and has had a dramatic impact on how I view my future role in public life. And I'm not uh, saying that lightly. Uh, I now have uh, a hatred for certain public people uh, that is neither healthy uh, uh, nor, <laughs> uh, nor is uh, it unjustified. Uh, and there are certain prominent people who have earned themselves an enemy for life, for life. And generally, that doesn't turn out well for people. It doesn't. Now, sometimes it has nothing to do with me. It's just coincidental. But the record is pretty clear that that does not work out well for people when you get uh, me as an enemy for life. Uh, but there are now certain people who have an enemy for life. I hope they've made a good decision for themselves. Uh, because because uh, that's that's the ramifications of this. And I have been harmed uh, greatly by this emotionally uh, as well as professionally. And uh, I am uh, not going to let this go. Uh, maybe I should psychologically, uh, emotionally, but, um, but it has made me uh, believe that there's no real purpose for me to remain in public life for much longer. Uh, now, you never know how circumstances can change, but at this point, unless something dramatic happens between now and the time of the 2020 election, I, I'm committed to, to seeing it through the 2020 election because uh, I think this is going to be the biggest uh, moment uh, of, of our modern country's history. And, you know, at that point, we'll know which direction we're heading. And uh, at that point, I can just pack it in. Uh, but unless something dramatic happens between now and then, it's hard for me to see how I don't pack it in. That I do, I just drop out of uh, public life. Uh, my two young daughters are only going to like me for another couple of years anyway. Uh, Grace is seven. Diana's uh, almost three now. Uh, so I might as well enjoy the last couple of years I have with them. Uh, but the public life thing is just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And telling the truth is just not worth it. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Now, one of the things that I have alluded to previously uh, that could theoretically change the equation is the ongoing efforts to do something with regard to the entire Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky uh, scandal. And my very strong belief that I have proven that the whole thing is a fraud. Now, this week, you know, you think that the Ken White situation is insane making. If uh, if I wasn't already so mentally strong, what I'm about to tell you would have made me completely insane. You know, they, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I can't think of a better example than this. So you know that Malcolm Gladwell uh, had, had a book out last year called Talking to Strangers, where Chapter 5 is based in the Penn State story. He uses me as his most extensive source. And uh, he believes that I have proven, among other things, that the entire date, 
the date of the, the most important episode, the so-called Mike McQuarrie episode, is catastrophically wrong and that the entire story should be seen through that prism and that Joe Paterno was totally innocent, the Penn State administrators were totally innocent, and that the case against Sandusky is, in his, in his words, shrouded in doubt. Uh, he's unwilling to go as far as I am because he has a lot more to lose than I do. Uh, but, but this is what he said on this podcast about my fight uh, for the truth here. I admire what you have done, um, and I, I would encourage others to read through it and reach their own conclusions. I think that you have, if we come out of this case by saying it's an incredibly difficult case and we should never have treated um, Spaniard, Curly, Schultz, and Paterno the way we did, I think you have won. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like I've, I've won, um, but uh, Gladwell was in State College, Pennsylvania this week to do a speaking engagement to talk about his book. And uh, I was very interested to see how this would go. And now I, I knew he wasn't going to go to State College and declare that, you know what, I, I realize that Jerry Sandusky is, is innocent. I should have said so in the book, as the Wall Street Journal, of, of all places, indicated in their book review that he should have done based upon uh, their analysis of the facts of the case. Uh, I, I didn't think that was going to happen. I, I knew for sure that the subject would come up, and I, I was curious as to what he would say and how that would be responded to. Well, uh, my understanding is that Sue Paterno was there, Graham Spanier was there, uh, a couple other members of the Paterno family uh, were there. Uh, there were a couple people who uh, have worked with me on the case who were there, including our fake accuser. Our fake accuser was actually there, <laughs> the purposely fake accuser who did a sting operation on the primary lawyer and the therapist in this case for over three years. Anyway, uh, he didn't talk very much about the Penn State case. And my understanding is because the people that were sponsoring it were some of the very same media outlets that created the false narrative to begin with. So, of course, there's a massive conflict of interest there. They're not going to say, hey, Malcolm Gladwell, tell us how wrong we got the biggest story that we're ever going to deal with in our lives. But he did say that Joe Paterno's statue should be uh, restored. And he did say that the media blew it. Uh, when it came to reporting the grand jury report at the very beginning of this whole story, and that this created a moral panic, I'm paraphrasing. And all of that was very good and important, and he was applauded. He was applauded at the event. No, that's fine. That's all fine. Uh, you know, there were some things I, I wish he would have done differently. He and I communicated a little bit before the event. Someone integral to the case had asked me to contact uh, if I if they could contact Malcolm Gladwell, I asked him for permission if that was okay to give this person their email. This person very much at the at the very epicenter of the whole case. He said, of course, uh, they did so. They wanted to meet with him or at least maybe go to the event. My understanding is he never got back to them, which was a disappointment. But he's a very very busy guy. There's a, all sorts of possible uh, explanations for that. Um, but you know, the event went fine. No big deal. I, I'm not surprised that they didn't have him go deeply into this whole thing because of the conflict of interest I referred to. And I'm thinking, all right, that's it. Well, then there's an article that is written by a mainstream news publication that, uh, decides that they're going to rip Malcolm Gladwell for coming out in favor of Joe Paterno's statue being restored. And they're going to do so on the basis, and this is, of all the slimy things that the media does, this is, it, it doesn't get much slimier than this. 
you know a story is bullshit and just a way for a reporter to express their usually ignorant opinion when they resort to using the cliched narrative of Malcolm Gladwell sparks backlash on Twitter. So essentially what happened is a couple of people purporting to be Penn Staters criticized Malcolm Gladwell on Twitter. Now let's be clear. The media still thinks that Penn Staters somehow have an incentive to defend Joe Paterno. It's exactly the opposite. Penn Staters are literally invested in everybody's guilt. They're literally invested to the tune of $120 million that was paid out to these bogus accusers. But they're emotionally invested as well. They're totally invested in their own guilt because if if there was no guilt, then they threw their own best people under the bus and they went through an huge emotional turmoil for nothing. So what Penn Staters say is largely irrelevant in this. They are completely invested in the media mythology. But from my, what I could tell is there were a couple of people at most who raised this issue against Gladwell on Twitter and this news organization used that and then absurdly on top of that used Gladwell's alleged connection to Jeffrey Epstein as somehow a way of discrediting Gladwell on this story. Well, as I've told you previously, because Gladwell and I have communicated about this because of what Sandusky's lawyer stupidly did in canceling a press conference involving Gladwell's book, there is no connection between Gladwell and Epstein. They never met because of logistical reasons, he found himself on Epstein's plane once, going to a conference. That was it. There is no Epstein connection. A couple of tweets from virtue signaling Penn Staters is irrelevant, but here's the cherry on top of this insane Sunday. What was the media outlet that did this article on the alleged bogus non-existent backlash against Malcolm Gladwell for speaking the truth for which he was applauded in the State College, Pennsylvania. It was Newsweek magazine. You cannot be serious. The same Newsweek magazine that a couple of years ago paid me and paid Ralph Cipriano to do what was supposed to be an unprecedented 15,000-word cover story for Newsweek about how the entire situation, the entire story, the entire scandal is a myth that it did not happen. And only because the managing editor, Bob Rowe, got fired just before the story was supposed to go to print did Newsweek literally 24 to 36 hours before it was scheduled to be published, pulled the plug, wimped out, and killed the whole thing because, frankly, the story was too powerful. It was too dangerous. It was too convincing that not just Paterno's innocent, not just the administrators are innocent, but Jerry Sandusky himself is innocent because the whole thing was bogus. It was all a moral panic. It was all the Salem witch trial. So if that's not going to make me insane, nothing will. To have Newsweek go after Malcolm Gladwell uh, in a situation where he was rightly applauded by people at State College in an event sponsored by the very media outlets that helped create the bogus media narrative, I don't know what is. And as I've alluded to previously, there are people who are convinced that there are some projects involving the whole case that are now doable because of the Gladwell book. 
I think they're too optimistic, and I have told them that. I've told you that. Uh, the the silence over the last week or so has been deafening after we did some things that were pretty promising and had some conversations and meetings that were very promising. And so my optimism level is very low at, at this point. I know there's been zero indication from the people involved that they're uh, ready to wave the white flag or give up or that we're even in any trouble. Ironically enough, I think Malcolm Gladwell could play an incredibly important role here. Whether he's willing or able to do that or not, I don't know. But uh, a lot of this is in the hands of Malcolm Gladwell, whether these projects are, are viable or not. And there were some things happening that were getting people excited. They, there was a newspaper in Pennsylvania, the Tribune Democrat, that bizarrely decided to run a five-page series from a local minister arguing, not particularly effectively, by the way, but hey, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but arguing in favor of Jerry Sandusky's innocence. You can find that at framingpaterno.com. We put all of the five pieces in, in one link uh, PDF file for you, so you can... Go to Framing Paterno and find that, uh, and I hope you will. But I am not particularly optimistic that we're going to be able to do the things that the people who uh, who have spent a lot of time and resources trying to get this done uh, think are that it is possible. And the Gladwell reaction by frickin' Newsweek, I think, is, is a, a symbolic indication of that. I hope I'm wrong, but unfortunately, I hardly ever am. Hardly ever, especially in this particular case. A couple other things related to this that I found very interesting. You know, Harvey Weinstein is on trial, and something fascinating happened that's related to the Jerry Sandusky story that I, only I uh, would ever have the, the guts, or in this case, you could certainly say the balls, because it's an appropriate term to use, would point out publicly. There was testimony this week from one of his alleged victims, a, a woman who was a former actress, who claims that Weinstein uh, promised her a job and then raped her, that, uh, get this, according to her testimony, and she was very clear about this, Weinstein has no testicles. In fact, she referred to uh, his genitalia as looking as if he had a vagina and that he was a burn victim in her estimation, although there's no evidence that that's actually the case. So she made a very explicit description in her testimony that uh, she could identify uh, Weinstein's genitalia because he had no balls, or effectively no balls. Um, now, I found this to be fascinating because Jerry Sandusky, based upon his medical records, has something called hypogonadism, where we have, I have, his medical records, which were never presented at trial because of stupidity and competence and being overwhelmed, that indicate that the doctor, more than one doctor, said he has virtually no testicular matter. He also has no testosterone. Now, why is this significant? Significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, <laughs> as a man in his 60s, <laughs> uh, uh, the idea that a guy with no testosterone and no testicles was doing the things that he's accused of uh, in the 2000s is is absurd. Uh, it's 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 just flat out ridiculous. Uh, especially when there's no evidence to support it. Okay, uh, you know he, he's described by these guys 
in as late as 2008, 2009 as being like a, a 1970s porn star, uh, uh, gay porn star. I mean, that's not physically possible. Uh, but that doesn't prove that he's innocent. But here's what I believe does prove that he's innocent. We have all the testimony of the eight people who testified against him. We also have the settlement records leaked to us of the 37 men who got $120 million from Penn State. In all that testimony, all the times they testified, all the times that they had the opportunity to talk to police or to someone about to give them money or, or to prosecutors, there's not one shred, not one shred of evidence of any one of these guys, all of whom were adult men when, they, when Jerry Sandusky went on trial. Not one shred of evidence any of them ever said, you know what was weird? Sandusky had no balls. Not one of them ever said that, even though that would have been a golden ticket to millions of dollars and prosecutors would have been thrilled with some actual evidence that indicates that they were familiar with Jerry Sandusky's genitalia. The reason why no one said it, Oxum's razor, is because no one knew it. And no one knew it because no one had ever been naked with him in that kind of a situation. No one had ever been close up enough to notice. Like Aaron Fisher, victim number one, who claimed at trial, laughably, that he had been forced to engage in oral sex with Jerry Sandusky over a hundred times. Now here we have a woman in the Weinstein case who is able to recognize, remember, and report this lack of testicular matter in what was apparently one episode, maybe a couple. How is that possible? How is it possible that the, that the, the Weinstein accuser, assuming she's credible, and I, I don't, everyone's saying she is, I have no reason to believe that she's not, how is it possible that bingo, immediately, that's what she, she notices and that's what she describes? How is that possible? And yet 37 guys get $120 million and no one mentions this with regard to Jerry Sandusky? I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's just not possible. That's just not possible. One other update in this realm. Um, Matt Lauer story is the never-ending saga there that I've been involved with for months now. Matt Lauer finally has a place. I'll give you the details. He finally has a place to uh, publish his extensive, some 6,000-word uh, investigation in the Ronan Farrow's book dealing with him and an accusation that I do not believe of rape against him by a former NBC uh, producer. And uh, we were expecting that that was going to come out soon. But of course, something, anything that can go wrong will go wrong uh, if I'm involved, usually, uh, and especially in cases like this. There is a, a family consideration that is calendar related that has convinced Matt Lauer that he needs to wait. So it's not going to be until March, in which, in which time, assuming nothing else goes wrong, you will finally get the extraordinary other side of the story when it comes to Matt Lauer, uh, the accusation of rape against him, and more importantly, the pathetic reporting of media god Ronan Farrow. So it looks like that, uh, barring any further developments, will be in March. Uh, today, of course, is uh, Super Bowl Sunday, or 
as the great John Vicenda might have said, Sibabel Sunday. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, interested in the game. Uh, I think the 49ers and the Chiefs are, are two uh, entertaining teams. They're good teams. I expect that uh, it will be a close and high-scoring game. I'm going to predict that the 49ers will win 38-30, to although it could be even higher scoring than that, the, depending on how, uh, you know, usually in a game like this with so much intensity, there's not a lot of scoring early, and that makes it difficult uh, for there to be huge numbers. But I'm, I'm going to go with 38-30. I will say that I'm most interested in the pregame show because in the pregame show, uh, the NFL will be announcing the greatest moment in its history as voted on by the public. And one of the four finalists is the Immaculate Reception, which, of course, was caught by our good friend Franco Harris. I have been voting hundreds of times and urging people as well to vote hundreds of times because the, the, the voting system is completely bullcrap. It's bogus. You can vote as many times as you want, and, it, and the whole system is, is very strange. I've even talked to Franco about this, and he thinks it's very strange. Uh, but he would be considered the favorite uh, to be declared the winner of the greatest moment in NFL history, the 100th year anniversary, obviously, this this year. And that's supposed to be announced during the Super Bowl pregame show. So I'm more interested in that than I am in who actually wins the game. Uh, but uh, I hope you have an, an enjoyable uh, Super Bowl Sunday. That'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. I do not know when the next time we're going to do one of these is. I don't know. It could be next week. It could be a couple weeks. Just stay tuned. We're reevaluating everything. A lot going on. Uh, and uh, I still need to figure out where we're headed with all this. But I do appreciate uh, your, your listening. And as always, I, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.